0: Please join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious and loving God, to sing of your mercy is a blessing to us. And to declare that it is more, we know how unworthy we are. We know what we deserve when we stand in the presence of your holiness, But in your infinite grace and kindness toward us, your mercy has been poured upon us. I pray now that as we open the scriptures, as your word is read, that you would honor your word, that you would give us the understanding we all need, so that we would know you in a deeper way that we would be filled with the gratitude of what you have done for us in Christ and that you would give us the grace and the help to live in obedience to you so that we honor the name of your great Son. Be with us this day and help me in my weak efforts in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and our reading this morning is a brief one, it's verses 9 through to 12. So let us hear the words of God. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. We all know what it is to wait, don't we? And often waiting is a really frustrating experience. It's something we don't really look forward to doing. But you know those times where there is a feeling of eagerness when it comes to our waiting? There is an excitement that awaits us, and therefore we are eager as we wait." Now, I'm sure you can think of many times where you've experienced eagerness while you're waiting. I'm a pretty simple guy. I experience eagerness when I wait for an order of chicken at a takeaway store. The thrill that comes upon me as I see the rotisserie, as I see them pack it, it is going to be in my hands soon, and I am going to be eating that and enjoying that. But more seriously, there is something far more exciting than a packet of chicken that we are waiting for. We need to remind ourselves as God's people that we are all waiting. And we are actually waiting for the greatest event that anyone could ever imagine. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back And when he returns, there is going to be a shout from an angel. There is going to be the blasting sound of a trumpet. And we are going to be caught up to forever be with our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are waiting for. There is nothing more exciting for anyone in this world than that. That is truly what is in front of us. But sadly, we waste our waiting. We waste our waiting by not employing our time, our talents, and our treasures to the glory of God. We don't keep our eyes on that true eternal prize that is before us where we are going to be once and for all released from this wretched body of sin. We are going to be released from the experience of suffering, of sadness, of sickness, and of sin. All of that is going to be removed one day, but sadly, while we wait, we waste it. We might waste it with worries. We're worrying about what the news tells us to worry about. We worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our finances. We worry about our relationships. Worry begins to break into our lives. And you know the feeling that worry brings. You can't sleep at night. You are biting your nails. You are constantly worn down by it. Sometimes it might not be worry that characterizes our time of not waiting eagerly, but instead it might be focusing on things that really ought not to take up our time. There are practices that invade Christian living that frankly are just very worldly and they truly are a waste of time. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, and He is, the great... um, Prophet Enoch had spoken of the day in which the Lord God would come back with ten thousands of his saints, as we read in the book of Jude. Our Lord Jesus Christ had taught his disciples on many occasions that he is coming back again. In Acts chapter 1 verses 9 to 11, as the disciples watched Jesus ascend to the glory of heaven, an angel looked at them and said, you need to get to work. He is going to come back again. The apostle Paul, time and time again, in his letters as he wrote them to the churches, said that Jesus is coming back. James said, the judge stands at the door. He's ready to return. Peter speaks. Of the return of Jesus Christ. The writer to Hebrews says he's coming back again. And John, as he writes the book of Revelation, says in Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye will see him. So it is a certainty. It is a certainty that Christ is coming back. So while we wait, what should we be doing? My encouragement to you all this morning is this don't waste your waiting. Don't waste your waiting with worry or with worldliness. Instead, we need to be encouraged. We need help while we wait. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12, is a very brief but practical section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul tells the readers how you can be helped while you wait. And this is a rather extraordinary passage. So what I want you to see this morning in this passage is we're going to consider two encouraging truths to help us while we wait. What are these two truths? Well, we could summarize them by two words, but I will stretch it out just a little bit. The two truths are simply this, love and live. Love and live. Now, what's happening here in this section, it begins in chapter 4 and verse 1 all the way to the end of this book, is Paul is giving some very practical words of encouragement to this church. You remember the background. Paul had spent some time in this city a number of years ago. He had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise be to God that that gospel had broken through into the lives of the people of the city of Thessalonica. And there was a group that believed. They became saved. But due to persecution, Paul had to flee from this city. And as Paul was taken away from this church, he sat there often wondering how they're faring, how are they going, When I sowed that seed, did it fall on hard ground? Did it fall in a place where it began to grow but got choked? Or is it growing and is there fruit? So he sends his trusted child in the faith, Timothy, to go visit this church and to minister to them and to come back and bring him a report. And as Timothy comes back and gives Paul the news as to what's happening in this church, Paul is filled with so much encouragement encouragement and he wants to give the encouragement back to them. Of course, he learned some things about this church. It was a faithful church, a church that loved Christ and loved his people, but just like us and every believer in every place, there were things that they could work on. None of us have arrived, uh, none of us deserve a VIP badge when it comes to Christian living, and we all need to be encouraged to abound more and more. So in chapters 4 and 5, Paul gives them a series of commands that are all designed to help them abound more and more in their Christian living so that they please Christ. That's what we see at the end of chapter 4 and verse 1. That is the whole point. And here in verses 9 to 12, Paul tells them that as you await the return of Christ, which he is going to discuss next time in verses 13 to 18 specifically, he tells them how to wait. And it's possible that some of them were so eager for the return of Jesus Christ that that eagerness actually turned into an irresponsible life. Now, there is a big lesson in this for us. We sometimes can get very excited about biblical doctrines. And don't get me wrong, we should, because there is nothing more exciting than the truth of God's Word. But sadly, in our excitement, we can become extreme. We can miss the point of that doctrine and what it means for Christian living. We should study doctrine so that we live a life of doxology, a life of praise to God. We don't study it so that we can be the great experts on this one topic and it is possible that the Thessalonian church was so eager for Christ's return that they were beginning to neglect their daily responsibilities. It's not that they had sold everything they had, bought white robes and looked weird and sat on a hill and started the chant and wait for Jesus to come back the next day. I don't think it was to that level of extremity but they were beginning to neglect the daily routines the daily responsibilities, because they were eagerly waiting for Christ's return. So Paul speaks into this situation, and he encourages this church, while you wait, you need to remember two things. So the very first thing I want you to see in this passage, and it's found in verses 9 and 10, and that is an encouragement to love. An encouragement to love. While you wait for Christ's return... You make it your duty. You make it your ambition to love. Listen to how this text begins. But concerning brotherly love. Now, I love this term, brotherly love. It is a a single word in the Greek text. It was a word that was often used to describe the affection and the bond that takes place in a tight family. The affection and loyalty shown between brothers and sisters when they weren't beating each other up. Uh, The the, the affection and kindness shown between a, a husband and a wife and between parents and children and children to parents. It was that affection, that loyalty, that kindness, that love that took place in the household. And Paul takes that term, which was very familiar with the society, and he applies it to the church. Here, Paul is not talking about some universal brotherhood, some universal love outside of the church. He is saying, in the church, there is such a thing as brotherly love. You have a bond that ties you together with other believers, and it is by blood, by the blood of the Saviour. You are one in Him, and you are in the body of Christ. So what I want you to see, first of all, as Paul introduces this topic of brotherly love, I want you to know that there is such a bond that is to be experienced amongst God's people. It doesn't matter if you're an old Christian or a young Christian. It doesn't matter if you're mature or immature in your faith. If you are in Christ, there is a brotherly love, a, an affection that is yours to enjoy and to give. And this is something we all ought to know. This is why we gather as the people of God. It is something that is very precious to us. But Paul goes on to say concerning this brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you." What a compliment. What an impressive statement. Now don't look at this and think, well, if Paul was writing to me, he wouldn't say that. He's not saying this because the Thessalonians were superior to other Christians. It's not because they had arrived at a particular level of their Christian living. The reason why Paul did not need to write to them was because of, first of all, the source of their love. He says to these believers, I don't need to teach you how to love because you're already being taught how to love. And who is the one who actually taught you how to love? He goes on to say, for you yourselves are taught by God To love one another. What this here is saying is if there is going to be a life committed to the genuine commitment of brotherly love in the life of the church. It is absolutely necessary, it is critical, it is essential that we all have the source of love, that we are all being taught how to love from the true source, and that is God. In other words, Paul says, you have the distinguishing mark of a true convert, a true believer, and that is God has planted in your hearts to love. This is what Paul said to the Romans. Over in Romans chapter 5, as Paul is discussing this great doctrine of justification by faith. In Romans 5 to 11, he talks about the fact that we all have peace with God. And as a result of having peace with God, there are blessings that are poured out into our life. And there in Romans 5 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, "...the love of God has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit." So you need to know and understand that the moment you become a believer in Christ, when you hold on to Jesus by faith, something miraculous takes place in your life. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Holy Trinity, comes into your life and He pours God's love into you. You actually possess the love of God. Now, the issue is we need to learn how to activate it. We've received it. It's been poured into us. We now have to dispense it. And Paul says to these believers, I don't need to write to you about love because you're already taught. And my friends, you need to know the same. You need to be encouraged to love, but before you go and start loving, receive the encouragement of this great truth, and that is, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are taught by God to love. Now, exactly what do we mean by love? What does it mean to love one another? I know that this is probably one of the most misused concepts in a lot of teaching today, Uh, There are so many unhelpful cliches when it comes to this topic of love. But true love is seen in the areas of commitment and care. It involves both sensitivity and sacrifice. Of course, this type of love is seen most completely in God's love toward us. And that is actually the foundation of us loving one another. God has shown great care toward us by sending us His Son. He shows great commitment to us by never letting His people go. And we as the people of God are called to love because He first loved us. What this means is to show this type of affection, this care and commitment in the life of the church goes beyond a mere hello. It goes beyond a smile. This type of love actually looks past us and looks at the other individual and stretches ourselves, and we ask ourselves the question how can I sacrifice for that person? How can I be sensitive for that person? In order to do that, we need to be fully focused on the Lord God and see His love toward us, and we need to learn to display a personal interest in others. We truly struggle with the sin of being self absorbed, focused on me, myself, and I, our three best friends. But true love looks past us and looks at the others and says, How can I pour myself into them? In order to do that, we need to learn to be aware. We need to be praying. We need to be listening. We need to be looking. We need to be on the lookout to see how we can pour this into the lives of people practically. And by the way, this type of love, it costs. It's going to cost you of your time. It's going to cost you of your talents. It's going to cost you of your treasures. But this is what we do while we wait, says Paul. Concerning this type of love, a radical love, a love like this cannot be found in the world. This can only be found from the greatest one who loves, and that is God. And Paul says, I don't even need to teach you about this because you've got the Holy Spirit in you. So love, he says. So we should be encouraged by the fact that as we wait for our Savior to come back, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Verse 8 tells us he's been given to us. He is within us and he is producing the love of God. But the way the Spirit does this in our lives is always through the Word of God. It is always through the Scriptures. That is where we learn love. Now, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit will use teachers and preachers, but the ultimate teacher helping us to love is the Lord God. So the very first thing I want you to see here is Paul gives the Thessalonians an encouragement to love. He first of all reminds them of the source of their love. You can love because you've received this love. Another way of saying it, you cannot love like this if you have not received this love. And if you are here today and you have not received that love, I want you to know that you can. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from or what you're struggling with. If you go to the Lord God with empty hands saying, there is nothing that I can offer you. I have offended you. I have sinned. He will receive you unto himself and he will lavish you with his kindness and love and bring you into his family. And then you can give that to others. But the second point concerning this love is not only the source of the love, but as Paul looks at this church, he says that you are also experiencing the spread of this love. He goes on to say that I don't need to teach you because you're already being taught, but secondly, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Now, I love the emphasis that Paul is making here. First of all, he says that there are the brethren in all Macedonia. All the brethren. The point here is that you have been showing an affection to all sorts of people. Yeah, there are those who are easy to love. They're the ones who tend to give back to us quite quickly. But there are even those who appear to be unlovable. And that seems to be what this church has been doing. They are showing brotherly love, kindness, affection, care and commitment, sensitivity and sacrifice to all the brethren. And that's what we're to be like. We're not to be zeroing out one type of person. We are to be showing this type of care and commitment to all sorts. Paul didn't need to teach this church because they're being taught. And secondly, this church is demonstrating by the spread of their love, by extending commitment and sacrifice to believers all throughout their region. Even those who may disagree with them on some points, even those who may not be easy to get along with, they have been showing this kindness. But then, as Paul thinks about the spread of their love, that their love leaves their life, their love even leaves their local congregation, and it spills out through the community of believers, Paul says, as I see that spread, I want to encourage you, though, to keep on spreading it. Spread it. You have been spreading it, but keep on spreading the love. And that's what he says at the end of verse 10, but... We urge you, we urge you, we, we passionately come alongside you and coach you and encourage you and call on you with genuineness to do what? He says, brethren, that you increase more and more. You are loving, but keep on loving. And this reminds us that there is always room for us to love more. There is always room. There is always ways we can improve in this. There are always ways for us to think of creative new opportunities to be loving more and more. Now, I want to just point out something very interesting before we look at our next point, and it's the way in which Paul approaches this. And I think there is a huge lesson that we can take from this. Paul's goal is to encourage this church to love. And you notice what he actually takes time to do. He actually, first of all, encourages them concerning a reality that they're already experiencing. He looks at where they are doing well. He looks at where they are growing. He looks at where they are pleasing to God and he actually affirms that. And then he goes even deeper then and says, now on the basis of you already loving Keep on loving. What that shows is a pastoral tact, a pastoral care, a a real interest. In order to encourage someone, you need to build someone. And just as a quick footnote, this is what Paul does in the story of Philemon and Onesimus. You remember the story just briefly? Onesimus was a slave of Philemon he apparently stole from him and ran away. Long story short, he met Paul and Paul leads him to Christ. And as they get talking, Paul asks Onesimus, where are you from? I'm from a place called Colossae. Colossae, I know a man by the name of Philemon there. I led him to the Lord. (laughs) Onesimus says, well, that's the guy I ran away from. Well, you've got to go back. And as you go back here is a letter to read to him and as Paul writes this letter he says before anything about receiving and forgiving Onesimus he says Philemon can I remind you you love God. You love believers. You show hospitality to believers. You are constantly looking outside of yourself and looking at the lives of others and you're caring and ministering to them. Now here is an opportunity to keep doing that. You see what Paul's doing there? And this here is an incredible encouragement. So I want us to be reminded, if you are in Christ, you have the source of love. It's your possession. The Holy Spirit's in you. And you have the responsibility to spread that love. And when you spread it, keep on spreading it. Spread it like I spread Vegemite. Put it on thick. That's what we are to do. But Paul now gives a second encouraging truth. And the second encouraging truth moves on from, first of all, an encouragement to love, to now verses 11 and 12, an encouragement to live. Paul says, while you wait, not only spend all your efforts loving, spend all your efforts living. You are to live your life to the fullest. Now, when Paul gives this concept of living our lives to the full, you would expect some pretty extraordinary language, but have a look at what he writes in verse 11. That you also aspire. Now that word aspire carries the idea of make it your aim, make it your goal. In fact, this word has been translated in some contexts as a, a public Uh, noise. uh, The idea of something that is very obvious, very open. So Paul is making a real point. Make it your life goal. Make it your purpose. This is your um, agenda. Make it your aspiration to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. It It just seems so ordinary. It just seems so normal It's actually just so simple, but that's the point. Paul is saying to this church, yes, Jesus is coming back again. And we should be excited. We should eagerly await his return. But the way we wait is by, on Monday, doing what we're supposed to do. On Tuesday, doing what we're supposed to do. On Wednesday, doing what we're supposed to do and doing this every day to the glory of God because in that, we are pleasing Christ and it is going to become a platform for a way in which we can be evangelists to the lost. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. Let's begin, first of all, with the first aspect of his encouragement to live. First of all, he gives them the responsibilities. The responsibilities are three We've just read them in verse 11. And the first one is that you are to lead a quiet life. You could translate that, be quiet. We are to be quiet. Now, what this is not saying is that we become holy hermits. It's not saying that we withdraw from society... Uh, When we're in public, we put our head down to the ground, we don't smile, we don't wave, we don't engage, we're just silent. When somebody asks how we're going, we just go, you know, that's not what he's saying. It's not a withdrawal. This is not some bizarre life in which we are then considered very strange because of our silence. What he's saying here is, as you go about your living, as you go about your calling, your work, whoever you are, whatever you do, don't be a provocateur. Don't be arrogant. Don't be someone who tries to get a response from people. Instead, go about things in a manner that is peaceful. Peaceful. If you want to be a faithful proclaimer, be peaceful, don't be provocateering. That's his point. And there is a particular application for us in this when it comes to the day and age we're in, and particularly with social media. There is a lot of noise out there, I know. There is a lot of frustration out there, I know. But don't use that platform to just simply try to own somebody. Don't use that platform to just simply make noise. Remember, you're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And while you wait, your goal is to see people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and one of the first things that you should do in your living is be quiet. Doesn't mean don't speak, what it means is don't provoke. When you do speak, be winsome, be wise. That's exactly what Paul commanded the Colossians to do in Colossians 4, verses 2 to 5. The second responsibility, while we wait, while we are encouraged to fulfill our living, is secondly, we are to mind our own business. Uh, We're not to be gossips. We're not to be intruders into the lives of others. We are not to be busybodies. Instead, we are to be worried about our walk with the Lord and how we can spread the love that the Lord God has given us into the lives of others. We are to be fully focused on what God has called for us to do. And thirdly, he goes on to say in verse 11 that you are to work with your own hands as we commanded you. In other words, you are to give yourself fully to the task of work. Now, I know we'll all be in different stages of life, but when we have the opportunity to work, we are to work with all our might. We need to remember that work was around before the curse. Work has been cursed, but work by itself is not a curse. You know who the very first worker is in the Bible? It's God. God. In Genesis 1, we see Him working straight away. First day, working. Second day, working. God is a worker, and therefore, work is dignified. Work is valuable. Work is honorable. But of course, sin has come into the world, and it's made the work dynamic difficult. It's made it frustrating. It's not always working out well for us. But as the people of God, we are to remember that there is a dignity and a value when it comes to the task of work, and we are to work to the glory of God. And we need to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter what type of job we have, as long as our job is not against Scripture. There is a dignity to your job, whether it is a meaningful, uh, sorry, a menial task or a task that appears to be meaningful in society all jobs, all work, can display the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you're a horticulturalist or a homemaker. It doesn't matter if you're a barrister or a barista. It doesn't matter if you're a baker or a banker. Your job can shine forth the glory of God, and that's what we are to do while we wait. When we go to work, We are to work for the glory of God. We put in our all. We do it excellently. Why? Because we're waiting for our Savior to come back again, and we want to show the world that we delight in Him. Now, these are the responsibilities that Paul gives. He says to the Thessalonian believers, Jesus is coming back again, and while you wait, you're to love, but also while you're waiting, you're to live And while you are living, you are to fulfill these responsibilities, but here's the reason for it. The reason why I want you to commit yourself to such mundane tasks, such seemingly ordinary things, he says in verse 12, that. Now, in the original language, the idea here is this is the purpose. This is the reason for it. It's that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. You see what Paul is getting at here? I want you to do all these ordinary things. I want you to give yourself to these things because there is an unbelieving world that's going to be watching. And you're not doing it so you please them. You're not doing it so that they give you a plaque and a prize. You're not doing it so that you can be celebrated in society You're doing these things so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, you are to be salt and light. The world that we are living in is decaying, and it is decaying fast. The world that we are in is dark, and our responsibility as the people of God is to display the extraordinary gospel through the ordinary. That's what we're called to do. And you know what's encouraging about this? We can all do this. You can start this tomorrow. You can start this today in the small little things that God calls for us to do. And we are to keep the big picture in view, and the big picture is that it's so that we walk properly toward those who are outside. We want unbelievers to see the gospel. We want them to see that we are adorned, robed, clothed with the preciousness of Jesus Christ. We want them to see his love for us as we show our love. And our love is displayed in the way we live. What Paul's basically saying here, another way of outlining this passage, is to simply say, as a believer, you have a responsibility inside and outside. A responsibility in the church while you wait for Jesus Christ, and that is to love and keep spreading that love. But you also have a responsibility outside the church, and that's to live, and live for the glory of God in the tasks that God gives you. That's what we are called to do as God's people while we wait for for the return of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and gives a second reason. It's not only so that you would walk properly and be a faithful witness and demonstrate your faith, but secondly, he says, and that you may lack nothing. It's actually so that you don't become dependent on others. Now, there are times out of necessity we will depend on each other. Uh, We may lose work, and we try to get work, and we can't get work, and there is a place for us to be able to be dependent on one another in this, and we ought to look to see how we can minister to those needs um, quickly and generously, But we are not to be lazy in our faith. We do all these things so that we demonstrate our faith and not become dependent. And the reason why he says not to become dependent is not so that you're somehow um, living this independent life in which you can boast. It's so that you're now free to give more, to love more, and to live more. It's as our Lord Jesus said in this same type of context in the book of Acts, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the blessing comes as we aren't um, unnecessarily depending on others. Now, I want to remind you that it's very easy for us, as we look at a passage like this, to use a similar excuse to what the Thessalonian church may have been using. And that excuse is, well, our Lord is returning soon. The system's broken, so why bother? I'm just going to do what I want and wait for him to come back. But is that really the attitude that we should have? I'm reminded of the people of God who were removed from the land in the Old Testament and were exiled to Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah had spoken beforehand that this is going to happen and you're going to be there for 70 years. So their time in Babylon was going to be limited. They were going to return back to Jerusalem. Seventy years really isn't a long time. So while the people of God were in Babylon, while they were waiting for the return to Jerusalem, what were they to do in Babylon? They could have very easily concluded, well, you know, I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and wait for the time to pass. I'm not going to really invest my time and my talents and my treasures in this place. Well, through the prophet Jeremiah, the instructions were simply this. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them to do during these 70 years. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts. You know what the Lord is telling them? While you wait for Jerusalem, enjoy the pleasures that I give you. Enjoy the blessings of marriage. Enjoy the blessings that will come by means of pleasure in marriage, that will come by means of productivity and procreation. Enjoy these things. Give yourself fully for these things, knowing that you will return to Jerusalem. And just like the people of old, we are in a Babylon of sorts today. This worldly system... And we are awaiting the new Jerusalem. While we wait for the new Jerusalem, let's plant trees, eat the fruit. Let's get married and have the best marriages. Let's have children and raise them to the glory of God. Let's enjoy these things that God gives us so that we demonstrate that we are children of the living God and that we will no longer be dependent so that we can give more and more to the spread of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, thank you for your word which we have been able to study this morning. Give us the grace, give us the strength to honor and glorify you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.